This morning we're continuing on with our series in Judges. Um, We're going to be in Judges chapter 21, verses 10 through 14 this morning, Judges 21, 10 through 14. I'm only going to try and focus on four verses, um, but there's plenty there, so, um, you know, don't fret, it's not going to be over quickly. (laughs) Won't be too long. So the title of this morning's sermon is The Sorrow for Benjamin, Part 2. The Sorrow for Benjamin, Part 2. A little recap, in case you've lost track of where we are in the story, or this is your first time uh, joining us in this series. I want you to understand what I'm going to be um, preaching on and what's going on in the text so, we're, so now what we're seeing is this: there's a confederacy of Israelite tribes that have banded together in a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin, basically 11 tribes against one. And this has to do over the, the horrible rape and murder of a young woman from the tribe of Judah. And this, this horrible crime took place in the city of Gabeah, which is in the land of Benjamin. So the the confederacy of the tribes that have moved against Benjamin now find themselves in a predicament, a a dilemma. They've had a series of three battles over as many days, during which Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was ultimately defeated. And in Judges 20, verse 35, we're told, "...and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. So there was only 600 survivors uh, from the army of Benjamin. And these men escaped to Rock Ramon, where they holed up in like a mountain forest, or or fortress, I should say, uh, while the Israelites, the confederacy of the 11 tribes, they kill everybody in the territory of Benjamin. They kill the old men, the women, even the children, and then they burn the towns. So this, this defeat of the Benjaminite army was decreed by Yahweh, as we could see in that passage I just read. But the, the killing of these non-combatants and the burning of the towns was not decreed or sanctioned uh, by Yahweh. The Israelites did this on their own in, in a frenzy of, of violence. The rage against Benjamin now has been replaced by compassion and sorrow over what has happened. They realize that they've effectively eradicated one tribe from Israel. They've wiped out Benjamin. The 600 men that are left have no wives. Their wives have been murdered. There's no women for them to marry. They've been slaughtered. So there's no children that are going to come to these men of Benjamin. They're going to die childless. And with them, the tribe of Benjamin will cease to exist. This is aggravated by uh, an oath that that the confederacy swore, the confederacy of of the Israelite tribes, what we've been calling the no-wife oath. Um, At the time, they took the great oath to go to war against Benjamin, 
when all the men of Israel gathered as one, as the text tells us, to repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they've committed in Israel. That is, this horrible crime against this young woman. The slaughter of all the Benjaminite women and the oath taken, no one of us shall give his daughter to marriage in Benjamin, to Benjamin, that's the no wife oath, like I said, means the the end of this tribe. We look at this from our 21st century perspective. Our modern perspectives immediately make this event and the aftermath difficult to comprehend. First off, these people don't act nice. And that is the, the, our culture's superficial mandate, right? Even though we're not really nice, we're supposed to act nice. And, and there's this phoniness. So um, we've got that to struggle with. Okay, this isn't nice, what they're doing. Um, they shed unnecessary blood without even flinching. Something that's shocking to us, but it's just like... Man, they just got carried away, and they started, and they couldn't stop. They kept going, they kept going. This not only against the tribe of Benjamin, but we'll see it's going to continue against um, Yavish Gilead, another uh, town that's that's in what's called the Transjordan area. The second thing that's difficult for us here is that we see how the Israelites tie themselves into moral knots over oaths they've made. And we think perhaps maybe they're a bit too concerned about breaking these solemn promises because we look at things like this differently in our day and age. Now, when I use that we do this or we do that, I'm talking about our society in general. I'm not talking about the church specifically. So... So culturally, you know, we are, we are different. So we've got this 21st century thought process, which is so different. And then we couple this with the difficulty of interpreting this genre of biblical writing called historical narrative. This historical narrative, um, at the very most, usually just gives a hint or a taste of the author's own interpretation of the events going on. The author, the human author, writing under divine inspiration, doesn't really tell us, usually anyway, what he thinks about all of this. So we're kind of left to ourselves to, to figure it out. It's, it's, um, there's no editorializing going on, which is a, 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 an easy way to, to explain. Um, it's just basically the story. The, the narrative of what happened in Israel's history. And so it's like, if you've ever been acquainted with, maybe a friend, family member who has a dry sense of humor, and you can't quite figure out, are they, are, is he or she joking? You know, there's no hint to this, because they got a deadpan expression, and they're just telling you something. And it's like, okay, I don't know how to take this. Um, this that's what historical... Narrative was like interpreting um, this part of Judges is like watching a British comedy. If you've done that, and it's like, is this supposed to be funny? I, I'm I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know how to take this. Um, so we have a culture gap to overcome when we're looking at these 
these British comedies. And with this historical um, narrative from ancient Israel, we, we not only have that cultural gap like we do with our British cousins, and it's a much greater culture gap than what we have because we're you know, somewhat connected to Great Britain. Um, we also have this time gap to overcome. These events occurred thousands and thousands of years ago. And we all know that things have changed since then. You know, the, the way people look at things has changed. The, the, the things around us have changed. So there's all these differences that we have to take into account when we're trying to interpret um, this biblical uh, text. So people ask, why couldn't the Israelite confederacy just set aside this rash no-wife oath? It's like it turns out that wasn't a good thing, right? So let's just, you know, just, for, just forget it. We'll pretend we didn't, you know, we didn't swear this oath. So there's a couple things we should consider that we need to know about swearing an oath. First, let's consider how we view oaths or vows or promises Many people today, I would say, could easily convince themselves that an oath made under duress during a time of stress, extreme stress, you know, in a time of war, let's say, um, or a state of high excitement. And these are all the things that are going on with the Israelite confederacy when they, when they gather at assembly in Mizpah. As, as you, I'm sure, recall, the Levite cuts up his poor concubine who's been raped and murdered and sends her body parts out to all of the tribes to gather them. This is like a, a telegram to them to come to Mizpah. So they come like, what is going on? Why did we get this, this horrible package in the mail, so to speak? So they're, they're, um, they're in a state of, of, of high excitement and and. and indignation over what has occurred. So we might think, well, that shouldn't be binding. Decisions made under a time of that, like that, um, you know, that's, that's just not right that you're, you're, you're held to it. <clears throat> and most might even consider whatever the expediency of the moment happens to be as the priority. And we know that priorities change, right? We shift our priorities all the time. That's just natural. It's something that, that is a good thing to do, you know, for the most part. So how can one be held to an oath or a vow made under one set of circumstances when circumstances have changed? There's now something going on that the Israelites didn't know about, didn't take into consideration. So, okay, we're dealing with that. Modern people find a way to wiggle free of these annoying promises. Everyone who gives testimony in a court of law, if you've, if you've been there, if you've had to um, appear in court for any reason or had to go to court, you, know, you see witnesses get sworn in. They have to raise their right hand, and they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. But you know what? A lot of people lie in court. I know that's hard to believe. But, but I've seen it. And in fact, I even had a judge during a court recess before the court was open to the public 
was joking to me about the people coming in to test a lie. <laughs> That's the judge speaking. <laughs> After swearing such an oath to get out of a fine or a prison, you know, there are people that are going to not tell the truth. They've got, like the saying goes, they've got skin in the game. It's like, yeah, this may cost me a couple hundred bucks, or I may have to do jail time. So who cares that I, you know, swore an oath uh, before God? I don't even know if there's a God. That's our secularism that's speaking. And then we, we also have oaths for anyone who enters into a position of honor, trust, or authority in our government. They must swear an oath. I had to swear an oath when I became a police officer. Every, every officer does. Every person that holds political office, um, such as our Congress, they have to swear uh, an oath. Um, the men and women that join the military must swear an oath of allegiance. Again, believe it or not, there are people who, after swearing such an oath to God, will take bribes. They'll break laws, disobey orders after swearing um, this oath. In fact, I think for the most part, we just about expect, like this judge I, I mentioned, we, do, we expect people to lie in court and for politicians to be crooked and do, to go against their oath of office. So these modern attitudes towards vows and oaths, I think, are probably best illustrated by our wholesale, our society's wholesale disregard of of marriage vows. And think about this. There, There was a time, and it really was not all that long ago, when the vow, till death do us part, meant till death do us part. Not just until I decide I'm not you know, totally happy and totally fulfilled by this relationship. But what all these modern oaths and vows have in common, we must realize, is there is an explicit or implied promise made to God uh, in them. That the one who's swearing to the oath promises to God that they will do what they are swearing or promising to do. So not surprisingly, as our society becomes increasingly secularized to the point where we might actually call our society a God-denying society, then our oaths and vows have become largely ceremonial and, and meaningless. If there, there's no force behind it, there's, there's no ultimate authority. Yeah, you know, you go to court and you, 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 uh, you're sworn in to give testimony if you lie you could be charged with perjury, but that happens very, very rarely. And it's not as easy to prosecute as, as people think. And how many, okay, just think in the last couple years, how often have we seen in the news reports of people appearing in Congress, to Congress, in hearings, and lying? Which is a crime, and no, nothing happens to them. Well, it depends, but for the most part, you know, nothing happens. So this is so different. This is what we need to realize. And this is the second part of our consideration here is how this is so different from Old Testament oath-taking. The wife oath that I've spoken about in chapter 21, verse 1, now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah. This is Savah, to, to swear an oath. And then the war oath, 
in verse 5 of the same chapter. For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. So this great oath, uh, oath is sibuha, uh, which is a sworn oath. This comes from the same root word as a sabah. So there's this connection here. And these words are used in the Old Testament almost always with the idea that it creates a future obligation along the lines of what we would call a promise today. So it's about something, you are going to do something, you will or you will not do something in the future. You will promise to conduct yourself in such a manner in the future. So the Bible has a lot to say about oaths. It has a lot to say about vows and promises. And the law of God in the Pentateuch allows for oaths and vows. We read in chapter 30 of the book of Numbers, which is, that chapter is, is exclusively about oaths and vows, a whole chapter devoted to it. And this is what Moses writes in, in Numbers 30, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord and swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. All that proceeds out of his mouth. And interestingly, we read that God himself swears oaths. In Genesis 22, 16 and 17, here we have the Lord speaking to Abraham. And the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So God himself is doing this. So we shouldn't have an issue with it. He's, he's making an example here. Um, and he commands, God commands that oaths and vows must be fulfilled in Deuteronomy 23:21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require, require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. All oaths and vows in the Old Testament, all of them, involve the Lord. The Lord is part of each vow and oath that we read about in the Old Testament. We know this from Deuteronomy 23, 23, where Moses says, You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. See, there's no indication here. There's no, there's no stipulation that you must say a certain, that you say only if you say a certain formula. If you say these words, then you have to abide by them. No, what Moses is saying, what the law of God is saying, is that whatever comes out of your mouth better be true because the Lord's involved in this. Now, we're going to see there's a change when we get to the New Testament. And this kind of explains, if you're thinking, well, Pastor Ken, I, I remember um, Lord Jesus talking about, um, you know, what we say, you know, and we heard it earlier this morning um, about when I think when Pastor Mike was making some comments about words coming out of our mouth. I'm going to show how this, how this is not a contradiction, how what Jesus said, which seems to like wipe out these Old Testament requirements, does not. What the Lord is doing is he's addressing sin 
sin out of our mouths. Um, but to, to show more from the Old Testament, um, when swearing an oath, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord was to be used. Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord, you go, it's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So we may think, well, what about the Ten Commandments? What if we, you know, we take our, our, the, the Lord's name in vain? No, that means, that means something different. Um, it, it's talking about swearing a false oath. A false oath was prohibited. Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That just doesn't, we just, we often think of that, that's just, you know, we don't use God's name in a blasphemous manner, which certainly we do not. We are not to do that. That is certainly part of the command. But it means more than that. It means that our words coming out of our mouth must be true. That if all of our speech is to be true before the Lord, if we speak falsely, we are taking the Lord's name in vain. This is important that we remember this. Leviticus 19 and verse 17 emphasizes this. It kind of repeats it. Um, the Lord says in, that, in this passage, you shall not swear by, name false, by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. See how that ties in this idea of blasphemy in Exodus 20 uh, verse 7? So what happens if you, if, you, if you swear falsely? Well, the Lord God revealed to the prophet Zechariah that this was pretty serious stuff. In Zechariah 5, verses 1 through 4, Zechariah has this vision of a flying scroll. And the Lord God tells him that on this scroll is written curses and judgment against those who on one side steal, thieves. Thieves will be judged. And on the other side, those who will swear falsely. That's what this scroll is concerned with that Zechariah sees. It's such a problem in Israel that the Lord, to an anointed prophet, is showing him this vision that, that the, the Lord God is fed up with this stuff. He's fed up with thieves. He's fed up with, with stealing. And he's fed up with people swearing falsely. These things are connected. They're connected in Israel because of the abuses by the religious leaders, which is what our Lord Jesus is going to be, he speaks about in the New Testament. This, this is how it all ties in. The New Testament views really are, are no different on, on oaths and vows than the Old Testament. In the New Testament, oaths continue to serve as a guarantee that one's word will be fulfilled. In, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, that author tells us, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he, that is the Lord God, guaranteed it with an oath. 
But as I've been saying, Jesus has some significant things to say about swearing oaths. In Matthew chapter 5, which we read this morning, um, uh, Pastor Mike read our, our, our um, Lord's Day reading from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 33 through 34. The Lord Jesus says, Again you've heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not fear, excuse me, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not make an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all. So how do we explain this? This seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? That that, um, we have all these passages telling us how to swear oaths, and then Lord Jesus says, don't swear an oath. Is Jesus contradicting or changing Scripture by his statement? Well, no, of course not. We know that's not occurring. So, so that means we've got to dig a little bit deeper to figure this out. Because what did the Lord say when he came? He said, I didn't come to, to wipe away the law. Not one, not one jot or tittle of it is, is going, am I changing? I'm, I've come to fulfill the law. Now, what, see, what Jesus is addressing is an underlying sin issue that's going on um, in his day of his ministry, in those days. It's the same problem we have today. First off, oaths were being used to manipulate people. The religious leaders had set up a very complicated system that made some oaths binding and others not, depending on the formula that you use. You had to keep these formulas in mind. So if you're doing business with someone, you've got to pay close attention to every word that person says. Because if they add a word, then they've made it binding. If they don't have that word, it's not binding. And have you ever walked away like, you're buying something that's pretty expensive, like say a car, and you're talking to a car salesman, and the salesman is explaining everything to you. Maybe it's a finance guy at the car dealership, and you're trying to keep everything straight, and you walk out, you're like, okay, thank you, we're gonna, we're gonna think about it, and you walk out, and you turn to your spouse, like, what did that guy say? Did he say this? Did he say that? You know, imagine if it was just like one, one word, one word he could add or take away that made what he said, you know, you can't hold him accountable for it. You can't be bound by it. Or if you say something to him and you add the wrong word, you're thinking something else and you add a word, suddenly you have yourself in a legal contract that you didn't intend. If you swear by the temple, by the altar, or by heaven, which those are important things, right? Think back first century Uh, Jerusalem, how important those things are. If you swear by those things, the oath wasn't binding. It It was meaningless. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, the sacrifice on the altar, and the God who lives in heaven, that oath now is binding. This is this is manipulative. The thought process behind these rules is fundamentally flawed. So God, being the creator and sustainer of all that is, 
desires that all of his creatures deal uprightly and honestly at all times with one another. Not come up with these scams where we can, you know, um, get in and out of what we say we're going to do. It's like you get a contract and you, you, you try and read the, the fine print at the bottom or you're online going through something and you have to click that you agree to this 18-page document to proceed further. And how many people, honestly, are going to read that 18-page document? None of us. None of us are going to do that. And we just kind of like hope that, well, I hope they don't have me in a pickle here by clicking on this. Because you go to court and the attorneys are going to ask, did, did you agree to this? Well, yes, because I wanted, no, 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 just yes or no. Did you, did you click this box and agree? Yes, I did. Your Honor, I rest my case. This person needs to pay what we demand he or she pays. And the court will make you pay. Oath breakers are accountable to God, regardless of what their oaths are sworn by. So you have this little, you know, tricky oath that you it gets you out of it legally. No, it doesn't. It does not get you out of it eternally. God will hold you responsible for that oath. That's what the Lord is talking about. This is the teaching of the Old Testament that Jesus is explaining. It was the religious leaders who were contradicting Scripture, not the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus was upholding Scripture. He was demanding a high ethical level of all people. That's what he calls us to. And it's revealed to us that we cannot do that on our own. Thus, he comes in the incarnation. He's resurrected, he's ascended, and he bestows upon us the Holy Spirit to continue on, to give us what we need to be faithful and obedient people of God, to be truthful in what we say, to be honest to all people. So secondly here, the reliance on oaths that we see in both the Old Testament, especially the New Testament though, what, what we're being told about um, these oaths and their accompanying stipulations that are so um, tricky. It reveals this massive ethical shortcoming. There's a huge sin problem that's going on. It's the prevalence of false speech. So how different is first century Jerusalem than 21st century world? I was going to say Southern California, but then I was thinking Sacramento. Okay, California. Then I was thinking Washington, D.C. Okay, United States. Then I'm thinking of what's going on in Europe and yada, yada, yada. It grows and it's the world. <laughs> because we're all sinners, right? That's the connection. So Jesus says... And, I, and Pastor Mike read this this morning, Matthew 5, verse 37. Let what you see, excuse me, <clears throat> let what you say be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So that's, that's translated from the original Greek manuscript there. 
that it actually has a double affirmative and a double negative. That is an emphasis in the Greek. That emphasizes what's going on. It reinforces the need for honest speech. So in other words, we can make this very simple. You know what the Lord Jesus is saying? Stop with the lying. That's the message. We read a lot into it. And, and some of the stuff we read into it is good. That, that we should honor God in all of our speech. Certainly, that, that is what we're taught in Scripture. But the veracity, the truth of our speech is the main thing. That brings me to the first point. Point number one, God's people are to be honest in all things. God's people are to be honest in all things. So Judges, the book of Judges, is concerned with rash oaths and vows. Chapter 11 of Judges, we saw how Yephthah's vow to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of the front door when he returns home victorious from Israel's enemies, fighting his enemies, so his only child, his young daughter, comes out, and he's made a vow to sacrifice her. And then our present dilemma, the, the no-wife oath that Israel has sworn, Benjamin is now facing extinction because of this. These, these show the solemnity and binding nature of vows and oaths, and how a rash vow is a horrible, horrible thing that these men who made such vows were compelled by the vows to carry them out. There was no quick way out. There was no easy way out. There was no disregarding it. That's very difficult for us to understand. We get ourselves in a pickle like this. We're going to pick up the phone. We're going to call an attorney and you know, see how we get out of this. And good attorneys are pretty good at finding ways out of things. Um, and I only say this to compare the difference in our ages and in the times that we live. We just really need to understand what, how important these oaths were. But Judges is also concerned with falsehood, with, with lying. Overall, Israel falsely swore loyalty to Yahweh, the Lord God, time and time again only to apostatize, only to turn away from the true God to the pagan deities time and time again, even though they swore they wouldn't. I won't, we won't do that anymore. Lord God, we, forgive us, we will not do that. Oh, look at that God. Let's go over there for a while. Jesus instructs his followers to be truthful in all things. Rather than using oaths to be taken seriously, we, we don't need oaths unless legally, by, by our civil law, we are compelled to, to swear an oath. Then, then we're okay with that. Uh, that's fine. But Christians are to be honest. We do not need to use oaths with one another or with people in our everyday dealings. You're selling something. You have, you have a used car you're selling. And uh, the fellow shows up to look at it. He wants to buy it. And he's asking about, you know, the mechanical condition. And um, you just, you're just honest with him. Yeah, well, I've had this problem with it. Or no, it's running really good. You don't have to sway, say, I swear by the gold of the temple that this car is in good condition. 
No, we, we bear the name of Christ. We're Christians, which was an insult back in the, in the New Testament times. It meant a little Christ. We are little Christs. We bear the name of Christ. So if we lie, we're dragging our Lord into that lie. Imagine if you were telling a fib, especially if you're a kid. I, I, could, I thought about this as a kid. It's like, what if Jesus is right behind you? And you're telling the lie. You know, do you want to do that? No. But that's effectively what we're doing. So last week we wrapped up um, verses 8 through 9 in in chapter 21. And and they say, um, beginning with verse 8, And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Yavish Gilad to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Yavish Gilad was there. So Yavish Gilad is located east of the Jordan River. It's in the the Transjordan. It's in the territory of the tribe of Gad. And so for whatever reason, we're not told why, but the men of this town did not come up to the assembly. So the war oath what scripture, what our passage calls the great oath taken at Mizpah, dealt harshly with those who neglected the call. They swore that those who did not come to the assembly would be put to death. This is because of and part of the Israelites' declaration of holy war against Benjamin. Any not siding with them, any not joining with them, were siding with the enemy. So that was the reason for this great oath. It's like, if you're not with us, you're against us. If you're not here to fight against Benjamin, then that means that we're going to fight you too. Um, so, but remember, this holy war here is, is declared by the Israelites. It's, it's not declared by the Lord God. And holy war by its very name, by its nature, can only be declared by the Lord God. And he does do that in the, in the wars of conquest in, in Canaan. So what they're doing is illegitimate. This oath is illegitimate. They have no authority to do this. And if you remember, they went before the Lord, they inquired of the Lord after each loss against Benjamin. And the Lord reinforced that they were to fight against Benjamin because the Lord was using these confederate, confederacy of tribes as a means of justice and judgment against Benjamin. Benjamin had sided with these horrible evildoers. They protected these men who did this horrible crime to this, this, this woman. But since Yavish Gilad was not present, at the assembly at Mizpah, they, of course, did not swear the no-wife oath, right? You had to be there to swear the oath. So here's where these tricky-thinking Israelites have figured out a way out of their dilemma. Since Yavish Gilead did not come up to Mizpah, they were in violation of the oath, which means that the Israelites could now attack and kill all the people in Yavish Gilead, according to their vow. And since 
the men of that town weren't at the assembly and did not take part in the oath to not give their young women to Benjamin as wives, that meant that these, the women in Yavish Gilead were, were, were open to be taken and given. They wiggled their way through these oaths. But they didn't break the oaths to their way of thinking. The dilemma is resolved. A source of brides for Benjamin has been found. And they've abided by their two rash oaths. They are determined to not swear falsely. Which, it's interesting, considering what they do. You know, they're, they're, they're worried about um, false speech, but they're going to commit murder. More murder. They've already committed murder. They were legitimately engaging in warfare against the, the warriors of Benjamin. But the others they killed, the civilians and non-combatants, that was just murder. So in verses 10 through 12, we read, The congregation sent 2,000 of their bravest men there, that's to Yavish Gilad, and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Yavish Gilad with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Yavish Gilad 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave him the woman whom the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Yavish Gilad, but there were not enough of them. See, this is where we have a, a really good example of why it's important to know the context when we're reading the Bible. You imagine if you're unfamiliar with the Bible and you open it up and it lands in this passage, and you're reading it, and you're thinking, well, it's in the Bible, so that means it's what God wants people to do, because everything in the Bible is like God telling us something about what to do, right? And you read this, it's like, oh my goodness, I, I, I don't see how, you know, a God I would want to worship could have people do such a thing. But this is, a, this is not, this is, this is, these are sinful men, that are saying this, that are making this decision. That's why we need to understand the context of what we're reading and encourage others who are just getting to know the Bible, how important context is, and that not everything in there is coming from the word or from the mouth of the Lord, that some of it is sinners speaking and that God deals with these sinners. So here we read in this passage, which actually I read 10 through 14 instead of 10 through 12, but that's our entire text for today. The leaders of this congregation at Bethel gave the order for holy war against Yavish Gilad. <clears throat> we read in verse 11 where they ordered their, their fighters, you shall devote them to destruction. And verse 10 you know, verse 11 is talking about the, every man and then every woman who's you know, been married or widowed or maybe even divorced, who, who, who's been 
at one point married, um, kill them all. And the preceding verse tells us even the little children. That, this is very troubling. They use the phrase, like I said, devote to destruction. This is harim in Hebrew. This is the declaration of holy war. God gives very explicit instructions to Israel on the laws of warfare, the laws of combat. And harim is only to be used against the exceedingly wicked Canaanites in their great fortified cities. It's not to be used elsewhere. It's not to be used outside the land of Canaan against others who are not Canaanites. It is not certainly to be used against other Israelites, other people of God, where you go in and you massacre everybody but the virgins that you're going to steal, that you're going to kidnap. So the raids carried out. Everyone is slaughtered but 400 virgins. They go to the rock of Ramon and they call out the surviving Benjamites and they give them the brides. There's 600 guys up in this rock fortress. There's 400 young virgins. 200 of these guys don't have a bride. So the dilemma persists. Second point that I want to make. Human reasoning cannot lead us out of sin. Human reasoning cannot lead us out of sin. Man cannot reason out of the natural sin state. Just as Israel could not escape their blood vows without resorting to more acts of violence. The path to escape from sin's prison through the use of human logic leads only to additional sin. When we're trying to use human logic, we think, do we choose what is best for the most people, for the majority, or do we choose what benefits us the most, or what harms the most people the least, or what harms us the least? Then we must ask the question, uh, benefits in what way? Should we be concerned with bringing the least amount of bad with our decision or bringing the most amount of good? All these questions come from classical philosophy. This is what philosophers have argued about over years, over centuries, over millennium, and they've argued in a circle. What they've discovered, although I've not really read one who admits it, what they discover is the dilemma of sin the dilemma of original sin, that we're sinners. We're trapped in a sin state. We can't reason our way out of it. We can't use logic to find our way out of it because sin is crouching at the door. Just like God told Cain, it's waiting for you and it's going to do its worst to you. We're in this perpetual state of sin because the first man the head of mankind, what we would call theologically our federal head, federal coming from Latin meaning covenant, the covenant head, he represents us all. Adam broke the first covenant God made with him, his mortal image bearer. 
And Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And that passage right there ties in death and sin. I've had people argue with me that, no, that Adam brought death into the world, but not sin. So we're not, you know, we're not connected to Adam through sin. Well, I'm... It's not that I'm sorry to disagree with you. I'm happy to disagree with you. Look at, look at the word of God what, God, what Paul says right here. Paul tells us then that the philosophers uh, have discovered, yet ignored, we're trapped in sin because of Adam. Sinners dead in sin. That's our inheritance. Yet God provides us with a way out, with salvation from this sin trap. People will argue that this phrase, original sin, is not in the Bible. Well, no, it's not. But that's what we might call a literalist, biblicist view, where the people that are, that are literists and biblicists, it's, they need the exact phrase. They to point me to a passage, to a, a, a chapter, verse of Scripture that says exactly that, that says original sin is. Well, it's... It, that term's not there, but I tell you what, the, the, the concept is certainly there. Paul tells us in Romans 5 again, and I think this is really in, um, helpful if you're not real sure on original sin or it's like, I don't know how to, how to explain that. So Paul writes of it in, in like I said, Romans 5, and I'm going to read verses uh, 17 and 18. This is Paul writing on original sin. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's always good when we see Paul say therefore, because he's going to explain something to us. Therefore, as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now we must realize that this all men, the, the, sancti- the justification sanctification, is not universalism. It's not like, well, see, that's just what the pastor just read, means that Jesus Christ died for everybody, we don't have to do anything about it, we're just all home free. No, it's referring to really all sorts of men. Paul is a Jew writing to a lot of other Jews and some Gentiles who are now Christians explaining that this is, now, this is available to all people, all kinds of people, whether Greek or Jew, male or female, slave or free. The only escape from sin and death is through Christ. The Lord Jesus and him alone brings us an abundance of grace. It brings us steadfast love, said in the Old Testament, just a wonderful concept. I love said the idea of said. That's overflowing, undeserved mercy. His perfect righteousness is imputed. It's, it's placed on the books for us. This is like a legal accounting term, this imputation. It covers all of our sin debt. It's valuable beyond calculation. Impossible, impossible for us to obtain in any other way through any action of our own. It's given to us freely. And that is our only way out of sin. 
and yet it costs us nothing. Nothing. The actions of the Levite back in Judges, after the attack by the, the sons of Bilial, the, the sons of Satan, really, in, in the town of Gibeah, his actions, dismembering his concubine, sending her in pieces throughout the land to each tribe, this inflamed the passions of each, each Israelite tribe that received this. It, it incited them to take action. And although we should acknowledge the, that the anger of the Israelites against the evildoers in Gibeah was well-founded and proper, it was, it was righteous anger, it quickly ran amok until it burned itself out in an incredible amount of bloodletting. So this righteous anger became sinful anger. And don't we often see this in ourselves when we become angry? We, we may start off being righteously angry over something, but then it escalates, doesn't it? It gets out of hand, gets out of control. That's our problem. That's the, that's the sin problem. Then this rage against Benjamin, once, once it's burned out a bit, it's replaced by lament. And lament so overwhelming that it led to more bloodshed of innocence. That's hard to understand. But we really, we see this in ourselves. We see this in our society. We see this even in scripture. And this leads me to the last point, point number three. Human emotions are poor guides in life. Human emotions are poor guides in life. Our emotions lead us where we should not go, where we do not want to go. How often has your emotion led you to a place that you regret having gone and saying things that you've said and doing things that you've done because you let your emotions get away with you? Our emotions are fickle. And what's really bothersome when we think about it, our emotions are subject to manipulation. Think of that every time you're reading the political news today. Like, am I being manipulated? Am I being played? Am I being made to feel a certain way? Well, most certainly you are because that's what political consultants are paid to do in this day and age. Not that it's any different from other day and ages. It's just we're living in the moment, so we need to deal with this stuff. We see this explained or, or, or exemplified, I should say, in Scripture. Um, the, where in, in Psalm 137, there's a, it's a lament, a, song, a psalm of lament. It's the lamenting of Israel. And in their lament, we see the language of anger. This is written, the psalm is written when the Israelites are, are captive in Babylon. They're tormented by their captors who force them to sing songs of Zion for the captors' amusements like how much they miss Zion, the mountain with God's temple on it, where they, would, where they could meet Yahweh, where Yahweh communed with them. And the Babylonians make them sing about it and laugh at them for this. The psalm ends with violent curses for Babylon and its people. This lamenting leads to anger. Human emotions are not good guides to in clearly understanding situations. 
we react in righteous and in indignation often, which is really not usually righteous. We just use that term, righteous indignation, um, but it usually leads to, usually it's sinful indignation. On the other hand, though, truly righteous anger turns to God for help. And God may respond with divine action, or he may respond with divine silence. It's his choice. But he will deal with that issue. It may not be in the manner or the time frame we would like. Our human anger wants death, destruction, and deliverance. But divine anger seeks justice in intercession in discipline. Human anger responds to unhappy situations where divine anger responds to human sin, our sin, responds to oppression and helplessness. Human anger wants immediate, seeks immediate action where divine anger, Lord God, he seeks human repentance. It's not that he wants to punish us. He wants us to repent. He wants us to turn, to turn to him through his son, the Lord Jesus. Human anger says, act now. Divine anger says, my will will be done. Our proper response in times like this is prayer. I'm going to talk about prayer for a little bit because you know, you might, people might think, well, of course he's a pastor. He's got to talk about prayer. You know, what good does that do? Prayer is so simple yet misunderstood and, and denigrated. Maybe because of its simplicity. Maybe it's just too simple for us. We need to do acts of penance. We need to get on our knees and you know, crawl up the stairs, up the steps, and, and, and do all of these outward acts so people can see just you know, how we, we are responding to this. Well, that's not necessary. In fact, it's, it's repugnant to God. The Christian life is a counterintuitive life. Our life as believers goes against the way we would normally live our life. That means it goes against the way the world thinks we should live. It's a powerful life through means that seem to the world to be weakness. I was listening to an interview of an Iranian pastor. Iran, Iran is one of the most difficult nations for Christian witness. Everything that has to do with Christianity is pretty much prohibited. And they used to allow, before the Islamic Revolution, they used to allow certain types of Christians um, that were uh, recognized by the Iranian government, basically Assyrian and um, uh, Lebanese uh, Christians to worship and have Bibles and stuff like that. This pastor was talking about, he was a teenager when the Islamic Revolution took place. He was Muslim, he was not Christian. And how he was so excited that the Western powers were going to get what was coming to them. They were going to be driven out of his country. He went, he went to two Christian churches to plan acts of violence against them. He wanted to, to meet with the churchman. He didn't know the word pastor. So he'd go up the doors. He says, is the, is the churchman here? And 
Um, he was going to carry out, like I said, but you know what happened? You know what happened. I mean, you tell from my emotions. He was converted. He was converted to Christ by a little lady who he never saw again. Here's a, here's a, a teenage boy who wants to murder people, and this little grandmother speaks the words of the gospel to him, not knowing him at all, not trying to convert him consciously. But our Lord used her to change this man who is now a pastor in Iran. And he said, he said, friends in America, if you face persecution in the, fir- in the future, if it becomes greater, know this, you will become stronger. It will be a blessing for you if you're persecuted. So it was only through the persecution of the Christian church that I was brought to Christ. Like Tertullian, one of the early church fathers said, and you've heard this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now none of us want to shed our blood as martyrs. That would be crazy to want that. That's not, that's not proper. That is not what God calls us to, to want to do. But if need be, to, to bring the, the, the Christian martyrs who have brought so many to the faith, it was... Well, I heard him, heard him talk about this. I wept. It's hard not to weep now because each one of us can do that same sort of thing. We don't have to set out intentionally to do it, but if we're obedient, if we're faithful, if we live the Christian life as we are told to, as it is, is, is defined for us, this is the result. But to the world, prayer is meaningless. It, it's, it's, uh, to the unbeliever, it, it's thinking good thoughts. It's nothing more than a pep talk we have with ourselves. In other words, the world looks at prayer as delusional. As believers, we must consider how the frequent reference to prayer in the Bible is a sure sign of its importance and, and its power. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of peach, preachers, speaking at the end of the 19th century, at a time when... If you wanted to go someplace, you went on foot, you went on horseback or by horsepower in a carriage, uh, by rail maybe to a big metropolitan area, and then you took a carriage, or by sail if you had to cross the ocean. Travel was difficult. Everything was far, far away, but there was this marvelous invention that came out about this time, and it was the telephone. Think how that changed the world. And, And Spurgeon says... He compares prayer to this new invention. He says, let the telephone between you and the eternal never cease from its use. So he's saying here, prayer transports us to stand before the throne of the, of the infinite. We take, we take communication for granted because most of us have phones that just are like, you know, marvelous and little computers in our pocket that we can do so much stuff with. But here, people, you know, a couple centuries ago were like, wow. I can pick up the phone and I can talk to someone across the continent. 
someone that I cannot ever get to, to see. And we become connected through prayer to uh, the omnipotence of God. In prayer, we step through an open door, really, to God's throne room. And no one can shut that door. Devils may surround us on all, all sides, but there's a door to heaven. We, we go straight up to the door of heaven. We don't have to go through another mediator. Jesus Christ is our only mediator. We do not have to go through a, a, a dead person, a dead human being. We go to the throne of God through the living and eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is our weapon in which we do spiritual warfare. Christian soldiers win their battles on their knees. And I'm going to be blunt here. You're no Christian if you do not pray. A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. If you do not feel called, if you do not desire, if you do not feel compelled to communicate with our Lord, brothers, sisters, re-examine your heart. Maybe there's a sin issue that's keeping you from doing that. But that should be something you desire. Prayer, then, we could look at it. Prayer is the sign of a transformed heart of the Christian. What is foolish to the world is precious to us. Our hearts have been changed. And James, the Lord's half-brother, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, a man who denied the Lord when the, before the Lord's crucifixion, who, who knew him since he was a boy, it was his older brother, and made fun of him, ridiculed him. We read about this in the Gospels. Now he's the head of the church in Jerusalem until he is martyred, until he is murdered for his faith, which he once denied. He says about prayer, James 5, 16, the last part of that um, uh, verse, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. There is so much power in prayer. We do not realize it because we're mortals. We're in a mortal physical realm. In the spiritual realm, you know, and we will see this one day. And I know without a doubt that each of us will be shocked and amazed by how powerful the prayers of the saints are, how powerful our prayers are. And I really want to, I want to emphasize this because sometimes I've been asked questions, you know, what, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? And I say, all we can do is pray. Well, that kind of, by my own statement, I'm kind of like, that's all we can do. What we can do, I tell you, brothers and sisters, is we can pray. We can pray. God doesn't listen to the prayers of, of, of the deniers. He may, if he chooses, to transform them. But he will listen to us. He assures us of that. He promises us that. His promises don't change. Why don't they change? Because God does not change. He is what we call theologically immutable. And there's many Christians that deny that these days. Oh yeah, God changes. He's got to change. He's evolving. 
Oh, he's getting better, is he? Yes, yes. He started off kind of okay, but now he's really getting better. Just wait. There's really good things coming. He's, he's going to get to a, the next level. <sighs> That's heresy. I'll be blunt. That's just heresy. But there's many who claim that. And because God is unchanging, he, he, he tells the, the prophet Malachi in Malachi 3.6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change which is a good thing because he finishes up that verse by saying, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Because I don't change, you live. Because if I changed, I probably would change my mind about you. Because I've just about had it with you. If God changed, we could not be saved. We'd be lost. Maybe we'd be saved today and not saved tomorrow. And then forgotten about. There's no assurance in that. That's not salvation. The prophet Nahum, he writes in his first chapter, verses 7 and 8, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. There's judgment. There's judgment for the wicked. But there is refuge. There is a stronghold for those who belong to the Lord, those who have righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our human anger is frequently, almost all the time, unrighteous, while God's anger is always righteous. That's why the prophet Nahum can say, The Lord is good. Even when he's angry, he is good. Even when he's angry with his people, he is good to his people. We cannot always depend on on other human beings, can we? Because we, why? Because we change. Even those people who love us to the depths of their heart, to our family members, to our, our grandparents when we were younger, to our parents and and so on and so forth, they change. Maybe not their, their, their attitude towards us, but we change in, in, in frailty. I'm talking about human frailty. And um, when you're little, your daddy is your fortress, maybe, or your stronghold. And then as you age and your father ages, he is no longer your fortress and your stronghold. You may have to be his fortress and his stronghold. But the Lord God does not change. He is always our fortress and a stronghold, our stronghold. So it's not that he's getting better, because if he could get better, then eventually he's going to go, he's going to decline, isn't he? And then we're going to have to take care of God. You know, you know how that goes. It's difficult. Paul in 2 Corinthians, I'm wrapping up here. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 3, calls God the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Who should we turn to in times of trouble and in our hour of need but the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort? Certainly not to a human being who is merciful occasionally. I mean, even the best of us, we want to be merciful and 
And there's times when we're just not, where it's like, I'm sorry, it is time for vengeance. Mercy's out the window. You've just pushed it too far. You know, yesterday I was merciful, but you did it again today, and and that's it. No, we, we cannot depend on human beings for mercy. And we don't want to depend on a human being who can lend us a little bit of comfort. These things, understand that these things are good, that we're merciful and, com- and we comfort each other. I'm not saying we're not, but I'm, I'm, you can see I'm comparing, right? I'm comparing the Lord to human beings. And, and I want, to, want you to see the difference in how you know, we think humanly because we're humans, but God is other. You know, and he is more magnificent, he is greater, and we have such hope and assurance in him because of that. We turn to the one from whom all mercies flow so that we experience the very font of mercy, the place from where mercies come out of, like the headwaters of mercy, you know, the, 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 the first waters of mercy. He is a creator and source of every form and bit of comfort we could want. Every source of comfort in the entire cosmos from, from all time to the end of time. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, he wraps this thought up, in verses 4 through 5, at least, I, I'm going to wrap it up with, with this verse 4 and 5 in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. It is our God who comforts, comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So Paul's saying is we, we, we're, we're, cons- we're consoled, we're encouraged, we're exhorted, and we're given aid by our God in everything in life. He watches over us with steadfast love, has said. He equips us that so we may do the same one to another. This is what is so important about us gathering as saints, as the people of God, that we may comfort one another because God comforts us. So friends who are not yet believers, trust in him. In him alone through his son Jesus Christ is salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, renew and refresh your trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the comfort and mercies that you give us. Father, we are ever mindful of our shortcomings. We take hope in you, though, Father, and through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, and the Holy Spirit who you have sent upon us. We give thanks for these things. Father, Help us to remember this as we go through this day today and in the week to come. We ask that this just be embedded in our hearts and minds and that we represent you faithfully. That when people see us as Christians, as little Christs, that they see a reflection of our Savior, the true Christ, that we honor him 
May we honor you, Father. We glorify you in all things. I give thanks for my brothers and sisters who are here today, Father. I commend them into your, into your loving hands that they may depart from here safely to where they need to go. Father, keep them this week until we can meet again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.